All right, for those of you who are in the room who don't know me, I'm Noah Simmons, and I'm going to be speaking for tonight. All right, so we're going to be continuing on in our series of stories of the Bible. Steve taught two weeks ago on the story of Noah. It's kind of funny that I'm up here now, but Steve taught on the story of Noah and how Noah was obedient to the Lord despite his surroundings, despite how weird it was to build an ark in a place where it had never rained in a desert country, and how God rewarded his obedience and ultimately preserved mankind through his lineage. And so tonight we're going to be introducing a new character into the timeline, and that is Abram. I know a lot of you probably know him as Abraham, and it's tripping me up as well. So bear with me as we go throughout this night, but we're going to be introducing Abram into the timeline. And if you're taking notes tonight, the central theme is going to be that obedience requires a foundation of faith. And what is faith? As we heard uh, Kaylee and both Abigail read earlier today, Hebrews 11:1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The average dictionary defines faith as a strong trust and or belief in something or someone. And so tonight, as we dive into the passage, we're ultimately going to be seeking to study the testing of Abraham's faith, which exemplifies his obedience, while also revealing his doubt. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3 read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So point one for tonight is going to be the discipline of obedience. The discipline of obedience. And so ultimately what we see here is verses one through three is the calling of God on Abram's life and the blessing of that. And it's a twofold calling. The first is to go, and the second is to be a blessing to others. And those are conditional promises as well of what he makes of if Abram responds in obedience, if he responds in faithfulness, the Lord will bless him. And what we see is that he will bless those who bless him, he will curse those who curse him, he will make him in a, great, a great name, and a great nation, and ultimately, all the families of the earth will be blessed through his lineage. That's the biggest one we see. And upon God's calling for Abram to go, Abram responds with obedience. And that's just not normal. Like, if you think about it, this decision does not coincide with our fleshly nature. Because from the context of the story, we learned that Abram was a well-established man, that he was successful, that he was wealthy, and that he was advanced in his ears. We learned that he was 75 when God called him. 75. Like, that's just crazy. And so in short, like, from, from the worldly point of view, he had no reason to uproot his life and to go. Like, absolutely no reason. He was comfortable in his spot that God was calling him outside of that. And so in short, what we see is that God was calling Abram outside of his comfort and outside of his stability in order to position him in a place and posture where he could grow in his faith and receive the blessings of the Lord. In fact, man, that's a, that's a common theme we see all throughout the Bible of God calling his people outside of their comfort zone. Like even with Chris, even with myself, like I don't like public speaking, but we're here now and it's outside of our comfort zone. We're doing it for the calling of the Lord. And we see all throughout scripture of God doing that. I mean, look at Moses. If we fast forward a little bit to the, the study of Exodus, Moses, in spite of his speech impediment, was called by God to be in a position of leadership, in a position of leading his people out of Egypt. And he provided his brother Aaron to be a mouthpiece for him as he was a prophet for the Lord. Not only that, but we see David. David was called as a teenage boy to fight a nine-foot giant while he was small in stature. This giant was literally bred to kill people. Like, how uncomfortable does that have to be? But not only that, we see Daniel. Daniel was called to faithfulness despite his pagan surroundings in Babylon. He even was rescued from the lion's den. Like, that's uncomfortable to me. And finally, we see Christ. Christ called the 12 disciples to leave everything that they had in order to follow him. That included their faith. That included their family. That included their stability and comfort. But if you were to ask any one of these people tonight, man, it would be a quick and easy yes that it was well worth the cost. It was well worth everything that they had to lose. And so one can easily infer that God does his best work when we are outside of our comfort zone because it causes us to be fully reliant upon him. And Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 12.10. 
Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What we begin to learn is that our weakness and our inability are ultimately platforms to showcase God's glory through us. And finally, as, as a result, like in order for us to reflect Abram's obedience, we've got to die to ourselves because there is clearly opposition between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. It becomes obvious that this response is impossible without discipline. However, discipline starts with the desire to achieve a set goal. It's rooted in determination and carried out with diligence. New Year's resolutions are a quick and easy example to help illustrate this. For those of you who are here in the beginning of uh, the spring semester for X15, you might remember that Grayson Berkeley had a little game. It was kind of trivial to kind of encourage people in their New Year's resolutions. And if you remember, there was a random guy in a kiddie pool, and he got a five-gallon bucket of ice water dumped on him. That guy was me. Don't ask me why I did that. But it was also to kind of encourage people to take cold showers and just tell them I was taking cold showers. Because Trey Burcham was taking cold showers. We're like, let's hop on this trend. And a little warning here. Cold showers are brutal. Like, they are, they are just miserable. Like, to this day, I still question why I get in the cold shower every morning. And so as, if, if I paint a picture for you, each and every morning, I'm more and more reluctant to get out of my bed knowing that I've got to get in five minutes of the most brutal part of my day. But as I was FaceTiming Hunter Reich one day, Hunter is in the trenches with me. He's taking these cold showers for we don't know why. But as we're taking these cold showers, he, he kind of points out the discipline of dying to ourselves and what this is doing in our lives. Because you see, the reality of the matter is I hate cold showers. Like, they're the bane of my existence most days. But in doing this, I'm choosing to subject my flesh to the will of my mind and my spirit. And although this is a trivial and even laughable resolution, the act of discipline behind this is the same thing Abram had to implement in his life in order to respond with such obedience. So the application for us becomes this. How are we actively disciplining ourselves for, for the purpose of godliness so that when God calls us, we will respond with such obedience? That leads us to the second point of tonight, and that's the longevity of obedience. Verses 4 through 9 say, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife, Sarai, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar there to the Lord who called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Within verses 4 through 9, not only do we see Abram's immediate obedience and his response of obedience, but we also see the longevity of his obedience. From the passage, what we know is that from the genealogy of, of Abram, he was born in the city of Ur. He was called in Haran at the age of 75. He was led to Shechem and to Bethel eventually to Canaan, the promised land. He drifts to Egypt and is brought back to Canaan. So a lot of distance has been covered. A lot of cities have been crossed. And a lot of time has ultimately passed. Because he's 75 when he was called. And the next big fulfillment of this blessing is when his son Isaac is born at the age of 100. That's 25 years. And like no student in this room can attest to even 25 years of life, let alone 25 years of obedience. But what we see is that Abram was faithful all throughout this journey. And the details of the story highlight the fact that the calling of God on our lives it's not easy, nor is it promised to be short, but it's always promised to be worthwhile. And so even if they don't see the, the fruits of their labor overnight or even within the next decade, they're still called to that kind of sustained obedience. Amen. And the thing is, that's a common theme we see all throughout the Bible. The prophet Jeremiah is, is a prime example of this and a prime candidate. 
If you've ever heard of Jeremiah, you probably know him as the, the weeping prophet, right? And if you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations, there's just a seriously depressing vibe about it. Like, if you read that, there's a, there's a lot of crying, there's a lot of mourning, because Jeremiah was called by God to be a message in a pagan society, and it was a polar message of repentance. He was calling out the children of Israel because they were reflecting the ways of the world rather than the ways of the Lord. And ultimately, like, that was a tough job, man, and God called him to to dedicate and devote his entire ministerial career and life to that calling. And he didn't see a lot of fruits of his labor. What we know from the, the, the known facts of the Bible is that there are only two known records of converts who listened to his message, and who repented and turned back to the Lord. Two converts in the course of his entire ministerial career. If that doesn't teach you anything about humility and the price of one soul, and I don't know what else does. Because I can't imagine spending 40 to, 40 to 50 years of my life for the price of two souls. Does that not change your perspective on how valuable one soul is? So there's a valuable lesson to imitate from the life of Jeremiah and Abram. And that, that lesson stems from the fact that the calling of God on their lives did not promise an easygoing lifestyle. Like it, it required a lot of grit and grind, a lot of hard work, and a lot of focus. So transitioning to a more relatable example, last summer I, I picked up mountain biking. And for the first time, Hunter Reich and Stephen Arthur, they asked me, they're like, let's go mountain biking. Like, and so I bought a bike. I went mountain biking with them. In the first half mile, guys, I stopped them. And I was just like, this is seriously dangerous. Like, I've almost died three times. I almost drifted into the river at Wolf River. I almost got decapitated by a tree. And I was seriously hurled headlong over my handlebars. I was bruised up. I was cut up. I was in agony. <clears throat> and we're only half mile in. And they're just laughing at me. They're just like, everyone does that their first time. Like, you're going to be perfectly fine. Just keep pedaling. I'm like, this isn't finding Nemo. You're not just going to keep swimming and survive. Right? I was like, there might be wolves out here. I've got to fight. And it was seriously, I thought it was seriously dangerous, and they, they were just laughing up a storm. And so we ended up going like 12 miles more, and my legs are cramping, and I'm dehydrated. And like at the end, my legs cramped so bad, I've just got to carry my bike and ended up just laying out on the pavement. I'm dead. I'm just pooped. And then we go paddleboard, and it was just awful. But anyways, looking back upon the first time I went mountain biking, I'm surprised to this day that I'm still mountain biking. But even if you were to ask me and whoever I'm riding with, while I'm midway through a trail at Nesbitt Park, if we're enjoying it, it's going to be a quick and easy no, because our legs are tired. we got a huge hill ahead of us. We've got five more miles to climb. And what we see is that the act of mountain biking, although it's, it's a recreational action, it, it requires a lot of hard work and focus. Like, it doesn't come overnight, but we have learned to enjoy it. If you were to ask us each and every time as we have finished, are we going to go back? We're never reluctant to go back, because we have learned to enjoy the hard work. We have learned to enjoy the focus that it requires, because what we've learned is that it doesn't happen overnight that it's one trail at a time, that it's one ride at a time, that it's one hill at a time. While this is simply just mountain biking and it's nothing too life or death sometimes, um, in the same way, Abram had to know that it was a long-haul mindset that the Lord was calling him to, that it wasn't going to be simple and it wasn't going to be overnight, but it was going to be worthwhile. So the application for us becomes, are we faithful where the Lord has us, and are we actively preparing where the Lord is leading us? So what we begin to see is that the life of Abram, you can, see, you can break it down on a lot of steps. As you see here, He's simply called to go and to leave his country land. I mean, that's a big calling in and of itself, but later on, if you were here this past Sunday, he was called by God to sacrifice his one and only son of the promise. We see an evolution of his faith that had to take place that was one step at a time, and it was that sustained obedience that took him from this calling to the calling of sacrificing his son later on. So finally, we come to point three, and that's the last point for tonight that we're going to be camping out on. That is the focus of obedience. Verses 10 through 12 say this, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. 
It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See, now I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your, sis- your wife? Why did you say that she is your sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So up until this point, what we see from the life of Abram, from the passage we've read and up until this point in the Bible, Abram has ultimately conducted his life in a righteous manner. He has responded with obedience when the Lord has called, that ultimately he's the poster child for obedience up until this point. But what happens in the story is things begin to go downhill because he takes his focus off of the Lord. And the reason I say that is because God has already led him from Haran, from Ur, from Shechem and Bethel to the promised land of Canaan, but he begins to drift to Egypt. And all throughout the history of Israel, Egypt represents a place of bondage, of slavery, and of doubt, and of temptation. What we begin to see is that him, by him drifting this way, he puts himself in a dilemma where he's got to be like, dude, I've got a beautiful wife on this hand. They might kill me to take her. So he puts himself in a dilemma where he's got to spin a narrative in order to see the people of Egypt. And he does that. He tells a, a half-truth, if you will. The reason I say that is because Sarai was technically also his sister, like the daughter of his father, but not the daughter of his mother. So things are already trippy, and there's a lot going on. But at the same time, he decides to tell a half-truth in order to spin the narrative that he wants in order to deceive the people of Egypt. And ultimately, the results are him and his family getting kicked out of Egypt, and a lot of turmoil happens because of this. Yet despite of all this, the same can be said about us, because our current circumstances often blur our view of God. And how often are we not are in a calling of God and we rely upon our own circumstances to accomplish his calling on our lives? And it just doesn't work like that. And so in the same way that we see Abram fell and Abram messed up a little bit, man, what can we do to remain obedient and focused? Because, I mean, it's inevitable. Like, we are all sinners by nature and by choice. We will mess up. Like, it is in our DNA. We have chosen that based on our free will. And so what did the great heroes of faith do? Like, what did, what did um, Abram do? I think so often, like growing up in the church and going through the Bible every other year or whatever, we begin to put these, these heroes of the faith on a pedestal. We begin to kind of romanticize their lives, and we forget that they're just like me and you, that the genealogy of Christ is riddled with sinners just like me and you. And from Hebrews 11, what we see is that, man, Abraham and Sarah struggled with doubt. Isaac and Jacob struggled with favoritism. Moses struggled with patience and faith. Rahab was a harlot. Samson struggled with pride. And David, a man after God's own heart, committed adultery and murder. So the question for us is no longer, man, how can we eliminate failure in our lives? But instead, how can we recover well when we do fail? Because we will. And what did they do? Like, what did Abram do? And although we don't know from this passage in and of itself, what we do know from the whole account of Abraham and Abram in the Bible is that he recovered well by returning to his foundation of faith. That becomes key because that was the foundation of which he was obedient and walking with the Lord. And the same is true, man. He, he fixed his eyes upon the Lord, as it says on Hebrews 12, 2, on that beautiful plaque on the wall over there. And that's the key for us. In order, if we want to remain focused, we've got to keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord, and that will sustain our focus. I mean, and trust me, like it's it's a much easier thing to say than to do. It's much thing, most things are in the Bible. Like it's, I could talk about it all day, but to actually live that out is a tall task. And if anything, I believe that the difficulties for us, like and for our generation, for Gen Z, have significantly increased. I mean, just look at our culture and its heavy reliance upon technology. 
Because anything and everything is fighting for your attention day in and day out. If you don't believe me, man, just simply take a step back from your social media feed and from TV and actively look at the worldviews and the sound bites that are constantly pushing for your knowledge and your mindset. And so I believe for us as Christians, man, the calling on our life has been, has been raised a little bit. I think we have to be more careful than ever to watch what we intake, but also to filter the information that we apply in our own lives. I'm sure many of you have heard this analogy, but I thought it was perfectly fitting for this. Pilots in the Air Force say that for every one degree a pilot is off from their GPS, they're going to end up 92 feet off for every mile. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but say if you were departing from New York City and trying to land in California, just being one degree off from your GPS, you will end up 40 miles off of your end goal destination. Again, 40 miles might not seem a lot from going to New York to California, but that is a marathon and a half. Like, that is no easy feat right there. Quite literally. But um, also, for us, I would, I would dare to even say that the ramifications of us, if our focus is just one degree off of the Lord, there are far greater ramifications. Because what we have learned from the scriptures and what I can personally testify myself is the downfalls of what we see of the people of faith are not from one distinct moment, but are from years of allowing their focus to drift further and further away from the Lord. And so what can we do to, do, like, to fix that and to mend that situation? I think the perfect reason is it's always going to be Jesus, but also what we can learn is that mending that situation begins by bookending your days with the Lord. Like, what would that look like if you began each day with surrender and ended it with thanksgiving? If you're bookending your days with the presence of the Lord, you can't go wrong. Like, ultimately, and I, I begin to think that, man, one's discipline helps to ensure their focus. So all these points, while they seem like they could be separate, like at the same time, they are working together in order for that one goal of building that foundation of faith and responding in obedience. This past semester, some of you guys know this, those of you who know me, I took a Calculus One course over this past fall semester. And a little bit about me, I've always had relatively good grades just because I was willing to work for it, not because I was super smart. But man, dude, this was a train wreck. Like, I'm going to be honest. And... Uh, so I came into the first, first couple of weeks, and I didn't have the wrong te right textbook. We bought two of the wrong textbooks, finally got the right textbook. And so that was, I felt like I started off in the hole already. And then the professor comes in. The professor is an older gentleman. He's very set in his ways. And he's, he's a little old school, if you will. And he tells us, he's like, there are four exams in my class and a final. That is your grade. You do all in this, you'll pass. If you don't, I'll see you here next year. And we're just like, man, this guy's stout. And we're just like, homework is nothing, participation is nothing, like, he doesn't want to see quizzes. He don't see anything. You do on the test, you'll succeed. First test rolls around. And like, I'm a little nervous. I, st I study, at least I think I studied enough. And then a lot of people bomb our tests. Most people bomb it. A couple of people do well. And uh, me personally, I make a 47. And I'm just like, dude, I've never seen so much red on one piece of paper in my life. Like, this can't be real. Like, maybe I can flip it upside down to 74 or something. And I'll take that. And I'm just, I'm kind of freaking out here because like my anxiety is through the roof. And I'm just like, 47. And I'll begin to rethink my future. I'm like, if God has called me to be an engineer, I can't be making 47s on a Calc 1 test. Like, that's just not happening. And so I begin to kind of, kind of freak out a little bit. And I'm just like, all right, that's just one test. I can still do this. The next test rolls around on my birthday. And I make a 65. And I'm just like, better than a 47, but it's still an F. And I was just like, I've got to drop this class. Like, there's no way I can succeed with a grade good enough that I can graduate high school with a math grade like this that won't take my GPA. And so I begin to pray a lot. I begin to study. I'm like, dude, if God is really calling me to this, then he is going to be faithful in providing each and every step of the way. But I can't rely upon my own, like, my own intellect because that's obviously not helping, right? So with the, the help of YouTube, with the help of Quizlet, and ultimately with the help of prayer, the next test rolls around. And I set the curve. I'm making 100. I'm just like, whoa, this is a fluke. Like, I made a 47. I'm not your guy who's making 100 and setting the curve. So the next test rolls around. 
making 93. And I'm like, okay, things, things, are, things are picking up. I now have dignity in this class, right? And then the final rolls around, and this is worth two grades. And I'm just like, dude, all, all my eggs are in this basket. The stars have to align for me to do well. And he gives us three and a half days to study. And I studied for 15 hours over those days. I'm taking cold showers day and night so I can stay focused, which is an awful idea because you will not sleep at night. But it worked. And I ended up making a 96 on that. And I was just like, oh, big whoop. Yeah, like I did well on that. And then my teacher emails me my final grade. And it's like, Noah, like you made an 89.6, which rounds to a 90. And you ended with an A, one of the only A's in my class. And I'm just like, you're tripping. Like, who paid you? But at the same time, I'm like, dude, a 47 to a 90. Like, what happened? And I don't tell you this to tell you that, man, that you think any higher of me. And I don't tell you this so you can think, oh, I can sleep through the first half of calculus and pass with an A. Because that's not the point. But the point of the matter is that, man, that God reminded me of his faithfulness in this. And I was like, if he, if he is calling me to this calling, then he's going to be faithful each and every step of the way. But I can't rely upon myself because that's not how the Lord works. But not only that, but I had to implement discipline in my life. I had to know that I had to put in some hard work and that I had to stay focused upon the end goal. Because if I didn't, if I listened to myself and I was just like, you know, I just made a 47, let's just quit this class. Let's just, let's just be a teacher and get a communications degree or something like that. It wouldn't have worked out. But at the same time, man, the Lord was calling me to this. And I believe if, if he is calling me to this, then he's going to be faithful each and every step of the way. Because that took focus, discipline, and longevity all at stake here. But the reality of the matter is if the Lord is calling me, then he's calling each and every one of you. Because his desire is to use every person in the room tonight for his kingdom. And so the question becomes this, man, how are you going to respond when the Lord calls you? John Ortberg once said this, God always knows what each person needs. He had Abraham take a walk, Elijah take a nap, Joshua take a lap, and Adam take the rap. He gave Moses a 40-year timeout, he gave David a harp and a dance, he gave Paul a pen and a scroll, he wrestled with Jacob, argued with Job, whispered to Elijah, warned Cain, and comforted Hagar. He gave Aaron an altar, Miriam a song, Gideon a fleece, Peter name and Elisha a mantle. Jesus was stern with the rich young ruler, tender with the woman caught in adultery, <sighs> patient with the disciples, blistering with the scribes, gentle with the children, and gracious to the thief on the cross. God never grows two people the same. God is a handcrafter, not a mass producer. And what we learned for that is that, man, God has uniquely gifted each and every one of you with the necessary talents and the necessary abilities and has sufficiently equipped you to make a difference for his kingdom. The question suddenly becomes, man, how are you going to respond when God calls you? Because he is calling you. He's calling each and every person in this room tonight to make a difference, to be a changer. And so as we draw the night to an end, man, there are ultimately two calls of action tonight. And for the first, those are you who are believers. And as I look across this room there, I see a lot of people who have, who have lived life with me in these four walls of the church. And that question for you, man, if you are truly saved, man, how are you disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness? Because God is calling you. And how are you conducting your life so that you will respond with obedience when he does call you? Because the question is that, man, pray to God, plead before him. As Psalm 139 says that he will, he will search you and reveal to you, man, the ways in your life that you need to discipline and the areas that you need to work on in order for him to take you to the next level of your spiritual growth. But for the second people in the room tonight, the second call of action is for those who are lost. And that begins by you taking that initial step of obedience and building your foundation of faith. And what does that look like? I mean, so often that we can just throw around those, these big church words or whatever, and we're going to say, oh, do you, know, do you know Jesus? Do you know the gospel? But the gospel is simple, man. The gospel is that God has created all things perfect. But each and every one of these people in the room tonight, and myself included, have sinned, and are sinners by nature and by choice, as I said earlier. And that creates separation between us and God. And we can't be in a right relationship because God is just and holy, and he can't be in the presence of sin. 
Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know that everyone has sinned. And we can personally attest to that. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We learn that the just penalty of our sin is eternal separation and death from the Lord. Yet God, being rich in love and mercy, man sent his son to live a perfect life and to die a perfect death and to bear our sin and shame on his back. And the reality of the matter is, man, it was my sin and it was your sin that nailed him to that cross, but it was his great love for us that endured that, endured the agony to save each and every one of you. But the thing is, man, he rose three days later in order to defeat death, hell, and the grave. But that's a free gift. And we, we learn from Romans 6.23 that that is the free gift of salvation. And a gift can't be forced upon someone. I can't give someone a gift and tell them, you have to open this, you have to embrace it. Because God loves us so much that he, he, he wants a genuine relationship with you, and that's something you have to receive, and that's something you have to accept. And so as we, try to, as we try to close this night, as we try to land the plane, man, that's the decision you've got to make. And so it's up to you. I'm not going to sugarcoat the gospel. I'm not going to sugarcoat the life of, the, of Christianity. Because as you know from this Abram, as you know from other Christians you might know in your life, it's not short and it's not easy, but it is going to be worthwhile. And I can honestly attest to this, man. Christianity gives you a redeemed past, a meaningful present, and a sanctified future. Like, what more could you ask for? Because I can honestly tell you that following your own ways, following the things of the world, will never give you a more meaningful life than the life that Christ can offer.